We're about halfway through the book of Hosea. We're in Hosea chapter 6, and, and as you should be getting used to in Hosea, it's full of these twists and turns, uh, things that we don't, you know, we just don't expect. And when we expect judgment, there's suddenly grace. And when we're hearing grace, and it's followed by, you know, just a recitation of Israel's sins. And here, chapter 6 begins with something that's kind of unique in Hosea, at least unique so far. So let's look at Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgress the covenant. There they dwelt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there, Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel. This passage begins with this, this call to repentance. And the part of the call to repentance is this, is this returning to a fuller understanding of who God is, something that the people of Israel had lost. And we find that today, we find that today not just in the world at large, but we also find that today sadly among many Christians, where the view of God has been so distorted, it's so distorted that living your life for him is seen as wrong. We, we, we find that if you, if you live your life according to God's word, if you live your life you know, with things that we, we used to think would never be questioned as right or wrong is now considered wrong. You know, one of the themes you're seeing more and more, you know, whether it's in media, TV, movies, you know, and people are talking, is that, you know, humanity, we've outgrown religion. You know, we've outgrown religion, even Christianity, that at one point in time, religion was useful. Religion, according to kind of sociologists and kind of the theories, was that, you know, religion was a way that, that you know, you held together cultures or civilizations. There's recent archaeological discoveries that show that that's all wrong, that religions predated um, cultures and civilizations. But people still think that that they were useful at one time, but they're not useful anymore because you know why? Because we've figured everything out. We've figured out the universe. We've 
through science, through reason. You know, we don't need the religion to explain our lives and what's going on. In fact, not only do we not need it, and not only have we outgrown religion, Christianity religions are actually holding us back. You know, you being here, you're, you're working against human evolution, human progress. The sooner we get past this and the sooner we just blindly trust science, as though science has all the answers, the faster we can evolve, the faster we can progress as a people. Christians and others who hold to religious notions, you're at best naive, holding on to something from the past. And you're at worst, dangerous. You're dangerous because if, if, if you keep holding on to these old ideas, if you keep holding on to concepts like, like absolute truth or, or some reason for, 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 to give a definition to what's right and what's wrong, you're holding us back from the freedom we need as humanity to, to evolve. You know, all of you who want to restrict sex to the marriage, that's outdated, that's, 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 that's old. You know, those who, who, who want to protect babies in the womb, it's, it's not because you love babies, it's because you hate women. And if you insist that there is only one God and that this God has the plan, the salvation for the world, you're not loving. You are intolerant. You're holding back humanity from evolving. We've outgrown this this archaic way of thinking. And and this mindset is 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 kind of it's it's kind of caught up in this bigger mistake where they think religion, and specifically Christianity, is part of this bigger story of the universe. So you have this huge story of the universe, of, you know, of nature. You have this huge story of humanity, of life in the universe, and religion and Christianity is just a small part of it. And frankly, as just an aside, This is the way a lot of Christians think about Christianity. There is a religious pocket, a Christian pocket that they feel, and they don't think of, they think of Christianity as part of their lives. It's wrong. As John has been using this term, and he didn't create the term, but I think for some of you, first time you heard it is when John used it when he talked about the gospel being the meta-narrative. Christianity, the gospel, it is not a story in the bigger story of humanity. It is the story by which all other stories have context. We do not think of Christianity that way enough. We do not think of the gospel that way enough. We think of it as one story. Maybe it's the best story. Maybe it's, it's the only true story, but it's one of many stories. 
But what the Bible proclaims again and again is that this, is, this creation is God's story. It is the gospel story. It is the context for all existence. And if we don't wrap our heads around that, we are always going to struggle because we're going to have an inferior view of God. Our God may be big, but he's not going to be big enough. If, if the gospel is the story, if the gospel is the, the meta-narrative, the grand narrative, the story that's the context for all other stories, it can never be outgrown. Never. If you believe that Christianity is outgrown, what you're doing is you're elevating the smallness of humanity to the position of the greatness of God. We're taking this little story of humanity. If you take science, and you guys know I'm not anti-science in the least. I think science has made incredible discoveries. And if you take what science says about us as humanity, what does it say? Someday, what science tells us is, Humanity is going to cease to exist. Cease to exist. We're just a a blip in the history of the universe. You shouldn't feel more significant if you buy science's version of what the world is, of what the universe is. But that's what we do. We take the story of the human and we make it the big story. And God is just a part of our story. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a story within the greater story of humanity. It is the grand narrative of God encompassing all creation throughout all time. It is the story of the outpouring of his love upon all creation and offers us the only way to become and experience the true joy of existence in his kingdom. The gospel is the only hope for creation. It is the only hope for humanity. If we try to leave this story behind, none of our stories end well. See, at the heart of Israel's problem is they have a distorted view of God. They have decided that this God, who they still acknowledged, rescued them hundreds of years ago from Egypt, helped them establish their kingdom. They still acknowledge that. They still go through the motions of of temple sacrifices. They may even read scriptures they don't understand. They still acknowledge it. But that Yahweh, Lord, the great I Am, was just a God that went alongside other gods. Oh, thank you for that story of the Exodus. Thank you for getting us out of Egypt. Thank you for helping us get the promised land. But that, your story, was just a part of our bigger story. Because of that, they they couldn't really conceive of who God really was. They couldn't really understand the covenant because they had just distorted this view of God. 
And because of that, we have prophets like Hosea who God speaks through and he pronounces judgment. And here, it's judgment on Israel. But in the middle of this, the first three verses is a call to repentance. And if you look at those three verses, it's like God gives Hosea this description of like true repentance. And the very first thing you see says, come, let us return to the Lord. Let's go back to the Lord. Let's return to him. But to do that, you need to fix your theology. You need to correct it. It says, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. What had they forgotten about God? Not too dissimilar from what a lot of modern people forget about God. That when we looked at the last chapter that God in no uncertain terms tried to make them understand. It's not he's the healer only. He's also the one that caused the wounds. The people of Israel couldn't wrap their heads around that. They couldn't in any way conceive that God would be the instrument of their punishment and destruction because in their minds, God was obligated to take care of them and to protect them. He was obligated to bless them and do good things for them. That's all they could conceive of. And because they couldn't conceive that God could bring judgment even though his word is full of warnings about not following the covenant. Even though they couldn't conceive of it. It's not just return to the Lord. Not just return to your concept of whatever you think Christianity is or whoever you think God is. It is return to the Lord in his fullness. Fix your understanding about God. It is wrong, and it has led you astray. Fix it. What they realize is, if they're going to really return in this call to repentance, they have to understand they're returning to the true Lord and not their kind of weird, like, syncretized view of of Yahweh mixed with Baal. The second thing, verse 2. In verse 2, it, it, it talks about that, that this judgment, I'm sorry, verse 1 first, it says this judgment is about bringing, it's, it's about bringing reconciliation and repentance. That God wasn't just hurting them to hurt them. He wasn't just punishing them to punish them. Throughout all of the judgment, there's always this invitation to repent. There's always this invitation to reconcile. And in verse 2, what it tells us is that God is the one who will, who will meet you in your repentance. He is the one who will make you new. He is the one who will give you new life. And how do we know? 
How do we know this has taken place? How do we know that we're on this kind of path of repentance? Well, he kind of picks it up in verse 3 where he says, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. What happens when we have true repentance, when we have true reconciliation, when we want to return to the Lord, is that we have within us this insatiable desire to know the Lord. We want to know Him. We will seek to know Him. And as we do, we more and more will understand who He is. We will know that, that he is not just a God, one of many gods. He's not just the God who happens to be part of my story. But he is the Lord. And he is the one who will accomplish all of his purposes. As surely as the sun rises. And the thing we also see is this kind of really beautiful imagery that's brought out in verse 3. First of all, it says he comes like the dawn. And then it says he comes to us as the showers, the spring rains that water the earth. To an agricultural society, those first spring rains were very important and they were awesome and they were beautiful. Because it meant the crops were going to grow. It meant the civilization would be able to flourish. His purposes include the flourishing of his people. And he's kind of like reversing what he talked about in the previous chapters. In the previous chapters, we saw there was a drought. And the drought was a drought of knowledge of the Lord. And here it says, no, if we return to the Lord, we understand who the Lord is, there is no drought. Knowledge will come like the spring rains. Verse 4, after this call to repentance, is kind of the sad verse of this chapter. Because in verse 4, now God is speaking not the prophet calling to repentance, but God is saying, Ephraim, Judah, will not repent. Will not repent. That Israel will at best offer some kind of shallow, fleeting love. Notice the, the comparison between the, the showers that come the spring rains that water the earth, like that, that regularity of it, how it comes and it makes a difference and it helps, and then it compares to the love of Ephraim and Judah, of Israel and Judah, like a morning cloud. It's there and it goes. It's like the dew evaporates. Then in verse 5, There's the pronouncement of judgment on the people. And it comes from the prophets. God speaks through the prophets and he brings judgment on the people. And then in verse 6, we have this verse that was repeating a thought from before, which is kind of this key thought of, of not just Hosea, but really of the entire Bible. 
What does God truly desire? He says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What the Israelites were offering was this kind of empty or shallow expressions of love for God. Look, we killed a cow. We love you. Now leave us alone. God's saying, no, it's not what I'm after. I'm looking for steadfast love. Steadfast love is this kind of, kind of technical term in the Old Testament that, that talks about a love that's based on a prior commitment, a prior agreement, which is the covenant. It's not simply like an emotion that's generated in the moment. You see, I desire that steadfast love, that keeping of your covenant, the obedience that you promised. That's what I desire. I desire that you know me. And remember, knowledge of God is not simply the acquisition of facts about God, but it's to know him so that you might be able to relate to him in a, in a healthy relationship. And then verses 7 through 10. Hosea goes through three different cities, all in the northern kingdom. And he does it as a way of describing the thoroughness of Israel's sin. This is how saturated the northern kingdom had become in sin. And he gives, you know, these three cities, and he talks about the people, he talks about the rulers, he talks about the priests. And he says, they've dealt faithlessly with me. It's a city of evildoers tracked with blood. And even the priests band together to commit villainy, to murder. Again, whether he means that literally or whether he means that the priests were committing murder because they had failed in their, in their task of teaching God's word to the people, doesn't matter. It shows how thorough sin was in Israel's culture. And then again, as we become accustomed to in Hosea, there's a sudden turn in verse 11. And it goes actually into uh, chapter 7, where it says, For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. At first you might think like harvest, because sometimes harvest meant, you know, harvest of judgment. You're going to get what you sowed. It's kind of weird because it says a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel. Regardless of when this happens or specifically what's being talked about, it keeps revealing throughout this prophecy God's heart. There is judgment for sin that needs to take place. But his heart, his ultimate desire is that his people would repent, that his people would return, that the covenant would be restored. 
that the relationship that's based on love would flourish. And when we look at the text and we think about what does this say to us today because this God of, in this time of Hosea is the same God who we worship today. And we see exactly that, that God's desire is restoration and reconciliation that enables all who repent to know him and flourish. This is not just the prophet's call to repentance in the first three verses. This is God telling us this is what's important. That God created us so that we would know him, that we would have a right, loving relationship with with him. And despite Israel's centuries of abandoning the covenant, of faithlessness, he still has not given up. And it's assurance to, to the people. Yes, you need to repent. Yes, you need to return. But you need to know that if you do, God is waiting. God is ready. Not just to forgive, but to restore and to bring true reconciliation. When I talk about flourish, we need to understand flourish in the sense of how the Bible you know, communicates to us flourish, because when we think of flourish, you know, a lot of times we're thinking of like just the things of this earth. But when, when the Bible talks about flourishing, about thriving, it's that it means that we know the joy of loving him. We know the joy of loving others. We know the joy of, of a right relationship with him and a right relationship within this church. Flourishing means the fruit of the Spirit is abundant. Regardless of what your material possessions are, what your job situation, what's going on in in every other area of your life, are you flourishing in the Lord because like the rains that, that come, that causes everything to grow, you are experiencing God in such a way that the fruit of the Spirit is abundant in your life and abundant in the lives of the other people in this church? If so, if so, you are flourishing. Because when the fruit of the Spirit flourish, healthy community flourishes. When healthy Christian community flourishes, the witness to who Jesus is the communication of the gospel, that also flourishes. We, in our love for one another, as the Apostle John will write in, in, in his first letter, our love for one another, if it's truly from God, if it's a fruit of the Spirit, will reveal God to this world. It's hard because we want some other definition of flourish. 
We want it to mean like, oh, there will be lots of people or we want to, you know, like we'll succeed economically or, or even we might not be so materialistic, but we're, we think of flourish in terms of, oh, I'll have a good family. Well, maybe those things will happen. But the main thing that we should want to happen is that the Spirit will be transforming our lives, that the fruit of the Spirit will be abundant. And at the heart of it all is repentance. And as we talked about last week and the week before that, repentance is not just saying you're sorry. Repentance is not just acknowledging that you did something wrong, that you hurt somebody. It's more than that. Repentance is the turning away from sin and the turning toward God. That's why it says, return to the Lord. That's why it says, press on to know the Lord. There is, there's this motion that's implied. It is not sit here and say sorry and just stay there. No. Repentance is, is there at, the, at this, the, the heart of restoration and reconciliation. And what we, what we believe that the Bible teaches us is that in our repentance, in, God meets us in that repentance. And through the work of Jesus Christ and through the presence of the Holy Spirit, we truly can be restored. We can have new life. We can be reconciled. I'm not going to unpack this totally. I'm just going to remind you of something that we've said before. True reconciliation doesn't just return a relationship to where it was. It makes it better. It makes it stronger. When Jesus was reconciling us to God on the cross, he wasn't just trying to get it back to how it was in the Garden of Eden. No. Reconciliation, he's making the relationship better and stronger. We see this turning towards him, following him, helps us understand the importance of God's word. It helps us to understand the importance of knowing God's word. As we've, as we've talked about here before, you know, you know, we believe that God's word, that, that it is true, we believe that it is the authority for our lives. We believe that it is without error. But we always say this because it's important to say this. When it is rightly interpreted. And why do we have to say this? We have to say this because people love to just go take pit, bits out of the Bible and not properly interpret it and say, Bible says this, Bible says that. That's how you end up, how Israel ended up, with this wrong understanding of who God was. They still thought the person they were calling Yahweh was the same God, but they had so changed the meaning, didn't, he didn't even resemble the true God. We need to know God's word. Kind of the action point is press on to know the Lord. Just as the text says, press on to know the Lord. We need to understand that 
that turning towards the Lord, returning to the Lord, is, is a lifelong thing. Yes, he meets us in this, but it's something that we need to be persistent. That's why he says, press on. It's the importance of discipleship. It's the importance of understanding, you know, that discipleship is more than just collecting facts about the Bible. It's more than just memorizing scripture and treating them like magic formulas. That's not discipleship. And yet you find Christians do this again and again. They quote promises from God and they believe that because it's in the Bible and they understand it the way they understand it, that God, almost like a genie, has to do whatever that promise says. That is not discipleship. Discipleship isn't acquiring knowledge just to acquire knowledge. Discipleship is when, is when we are learning, we're studying, we're growing, being taught by Christians, preferably the Christian leaders in your church, and we're being taught by, by them. And as we're being taught God's word by them, the Holy Spirit is working in our lives and continuing to transform us, continuing to help us know the fruit of the Spirit abounding in our lives, strengthening our faith, giving us a deeper understanding of who God is, of what his mission in this world is, and what he would have us do. It's not just knowing the Bible. I know a lot of people who know way more facts about the Bible than I do. But it's not just knowing facts about the Bible. If we're really being discipled, if we're really understanding the Bible, and the Spirit's really meeting us in that, then this is what should be happening to us. We should not become more proud of our Christianity. We should become more humble. We should have not people need to hear me because I know truth and, you know, you know, I don't know how the church got along without me for so long, but thank God I'm here now. No. It's the opposite. You have the servant heart, Jesus. We talk about this too. It's like, you know, whenever we are looking for people who, to serve at the church, whether it's in official capacity or, or otherwise. I mean, people know my like, number one criteria, besides all the things like they should be obviously believers, etc. But my number one criterion is they are teachable. Because a teachable spirit is a humble spirit, and a humble spirit is more like the heart of Jesus than somebody who's not teachable. But we need to press on to know the Lord, knowing that as we know the Lord, our lives will be continually transformed more and more to the heart and mind of Christ. The second thing 
this text tells us is that even though God desires repentance, He will not look past our sin. He will not look past our sin. But He has made a way of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. God's law is more than just a set of arbitrary rules or suggestions. God's laws are about having a healthy community, healthy relationship with Him a healthy relationship with each other. God knows that sin that goes against his law is destructive. It's not necessarily destructive like as soon as you do it, you know, a button gets pressed and you explode. Sometimes the destruction is long and slow and you don't notice it until it's too late. God knows that we cannot overcome sin He knows we cannot keep his law perfectly. And because he knows sin and he knows us, he provided victory for us over sin and death through Jesus Christ. God offers forgiveness. He offers new life in Christ to all who would repent and call upon the name of the Lord. whether you're a believer or not. At some point in time, when you become a Christian, if you're not a believer, or for many of you who are believers, who sometimes struggle with this, this is the action point. You need to live in the forgiveness and the newness of life that Jesus brings. You see, the Christian should not be overwhelmed by guilt because we have been forgiven. The Christian should not be overwhelmed by sin because Christ not only paid the penalty for sin, he conquered the power of sin. But too many people live, like Christians live just crippled by guilt. Or they live still as though sin has control over their lives. They don't embrace that when they became believers, they were made new. With that, what new means is new, new possibilities, new abilities. There's a lot of times people become Christians and they go, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, but I'm still kind of the, the same person. They don't understand that, no, Jesus Christ has come into your life. He's given you the Holy Spirit. You have God's love in your life. You have been given spiritual gifts. Your potential is limited by God's plan and His power. His power is infinite. His plan for you I don't know what it is, and neither do you. But as long as you feel like you're crippled by sin, you're the same person you were before, just a little cleaner, you will never say, God, I don't know how you want to use me. You may want to use me in the greatest, most public way, or you may want to use me in a quiet, kind of private way that no one is really going to know. 
I don't, I, don't, I don't care how you want to use me. I just want you to use me. That's the desire of the one who's no longer crippled by sin and crippled by guilt. When we live in the forgiveness and newness of life that Jesus provides, we're, no, we're not overwhelmed by the fear of death. Why? Because Christ conquered death. He conquered death. And he made the way of eternal life with him. What human beings have in common is we all will die. We will all die a physical death. It's coming. And many people then live in fear of that death, even if it's not fear of imminent death. It's all about like, you know, you know, how, you know, how can I put that off as long as possible? They make so many decisions based on, on, on that. When you come to Christ and you know what eternal life means and you experience eternal life, you know you no longer live in the fear of death. You live in the promise and in the presence of Jesus Christ. This text also tells us that we need to understand the depth and destructiveness of sin. Not so that we can again just pile guilt upon ourselves and be like, oh, what a terrible person I was or still am. No. It's because when we understand the depth and destructiveness of sin, we will understand more of who God is. We will understand more of the salvation. We will understand more of the grace that he pours out on us. The Israelites had rejected God. They had forgotten God. They had reinterpreted God. And as a result, they had rejected the concept of sin. They had forgotten the concepts of sin. They reinterpreted what sin was. To them, to not worship Baal was sin. Directly opposite of what God had said. Do not worship false idols. Israel didn't understand the importance of the covenant to their society. They didn't understand that what God was doing was not just giving them rules. He was actually showing them like the like a like a plan, a model for this is how you have a healthy, godly, stable community. They didn't understand it. They didn't understand that that straying from that wasn't just little individual decisions of doing what they wanted. But it was against God's very plan. They misinterpreted God's grace. They misinterpreted the fact that, you know, like they, they, they might have committed a sin, they might have worshipped at the Baal temple, and on the way home, they didn't get struck dead by lightning. They misinterpreted that. They didn't see that, that it wasn't God not taking their sin seriously. It wasn't that God was saying, yeah, it's cool. You can go worship that other God too. No, it was God's grace. It was this call to repentance rather than this immediate judgment. 
And when we look at what Israelites failed to do, we know that we're at risk to do the same things, especially when we do not understand the tragedy of sin. When we rationalize sin, when we minimize sin, when we trivialize sin, when we redefine sin, when we get kind of comfortable and cozy with sin, we become so familiar with it, even if we're not the ones doing it, it's just like, you know, we're just, it's okay. And why? Because, because we don't necessarily see judgment. I used to use this example, and I don't know if it totally fits, but I used to say, like, if, if, if people smoke cigarettes, and as soon as they smoked a cigarette, their head exploded, nobody would smoke cigarettes except eighth-grade boys. Nobody else would. Because there's an immediate consequence. But if you tell me maybe 20, 30, 40 years from now you're going to have emphysema, 20, 30, 40 years from now you may have lung cancer, well, okay, maybe. If they don't have an immediate effect of sin, they don't think there's consequences, and there are. We saw that with Israel, where their repeated sin had so changed their culture that now they're said to have a spirit of whoredom, a spirit of idolatry. The action is simple. Take seriously the consequences of sin, but also take seriously the blessings of following Jesus. The final point is this. The God who brought judgment to the unfaithful is the God who will save the repentant. God does not desire that anyone should perish, but he will not force them to follow. God loves us, but he hates our sin that we have enslaved ourselves in. God knows we cannot keep the covenant on our own, and we cannot be in a covenant if we're enslaved to sin. And so God saves us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he transforms us by his word, his Holy Spirit, so that we can keep the covenant, that we can love him, and we can love others as only he can love. Action point is simple. Know and receive the depth of grace that our infinite loving God extends to you. For the non-Christian, this means repenting, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. For the Christian who's, who's either caught deep in sin right now, whether it's an action or whether it's just an attitude, pride, arrogance, whatever it is, this means repenting to God. And then seek help. Don't just repent and say, okay, I'm, I can take care of it myself. No, seek help. Come talk to your pastors. Talk to trusted Christians that you know will help you. For those who've kind of plateaued in their faith, repent for taking, taking for granted the grace of God. And then stop it. You want to break through from being plateaued? Be discipled so that you can grow in your faith and you can continually be 
become more and more Christ-like. And for those of you who have this deepening knowledge of God's grace, it's been going on for a while now, take to heart this, this, this call to press on to know the Lord, to drink even more deeply from his infinite will. So our response is that God would help us, that he would help us to offer the steadfast love that he desires and help us to know him more. Not for our sake, even though we are blessed by knowing God, but so that he might use us for his glory. For those of you who are here on Wednesday night, we took Hosea 6.3 and did a little song, so now's your time to shine, okay? need you to sing. We don't, I don't have my ukulele up here. I'm just going to sing a cappella. It's a simple song of Hosea 6.3. And I want to encourage you to kind of sing it with us, and we'll go through it twice. I can't tell you what key it is going to be in. I'm just going to start, okay? But this is a song that I think captures what should be the heart of all who are in this journey of repentance. It goes like this. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn and he will come to us like the rain like the spring rain watering the earth let us press on to know the lord see if you can do that with me so let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn and he will come to us like the rain like the spring rain watering the earth let us press on to know the lord